0: Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good afternoon, everyone. This is uh, Kennard speaking. I'm your host for the Merciful Service of God, a biblical instructional program. Uh, today, uh, we're going to talk about uh, being rich and what that does to you and what Yeshua stated about being rich. Uh I think there's a of fact, I know there's a misunderstanding about uh the rich's role in this world and what um Elohim expects from someone who uh is blessed enough to be rich. Uh I'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, give me about 30 seconds. sorry about that and just wanted to grab this book because i'm going to refer to this book uh the end of poverty economic possibilities for our times by jeffrey d Sachs. and it's a, a great book i recommend anyone get it and at least read the introductory pages that explains how the world was before uh... the industrial revolution anyway before i get into that uh... didn't have any time really to check what's going on in the world but uh... Let me look at watch.org here. and Oh, yes. Uh, Egypt right now, uh, the president of Egypt, is being defined as a pharaoh. And this is pretty interesting because uh, he gave himself more power and the people are complaining now that he's like the pharaoh was back in the old days of Egypt. So I'm sure many of you if you don't have your head to sand, you realize that God had mercy again on uh, the Jews and and the Palestinians, for that matter. And uh, there's a current ceasefire right now. Now, I mentioned last week that prophecy is tricky, meaning that uh, is, it can be difficult to understand. But I think it's significant that uh, the Bible is talking about Gaza and these areas in the context of the day of the Lord. So we know just based on 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 those scriptures and other many other scriptures that we are in what the Bible calls the last days. But uh, again, I didn't know whether or not something would happen on the fourth day of Kislev, and obviously nothing significant happened. But I think it is significant that these things are happening around that time, based on the context of the scriptures. So I just wanted to make that point. Um, there's a headline here on Watch It says ceasefire puts Netanyahu on the defensive but he likely won't have to he, he likely won't have to worry come January it's talking about him being reelected i think it says uh Benjamin Netanyahu's decision not to widen the Gaza offensive has put the prime minister on the defensive a stance he will likely have to maintain for the coming days and maybe weeks the rockets have stopped and Hamas has been dealt a severe blow but in Israel, bitterness is growing over the decision to agree to a ceasefire before launching a ground operation, as many had wished to ostensibly clean up Gaza terrorism once and for all. And it says, IDF chief chief, chief IDF of staff, as the dust settles, Hamas will realize the price it has paid. So, I mean, let's read a little bit about what the... Uh, Israeli Defense Forces uh, chief stated here. IDF Chief of Staff Lieutenant General Benny Gantz said that all the objectives laid out ahead of Operation Pillar of Defense were met successfully during the eight days of fighting. Gantz made the statement while visiting wounded soldiers at the Siruka Medical Center in Besheba on Friday. It is entirely the operation, in its entirety, the operation was coordinated with the upper echelon. We knew what we wanted to achieve and how we wanted to act all the operations objectives were successfully met as the days pass and the dust settles the other side will realize the price it paid for his actions the IDF chief said adding that people should not get worked up over the various demonstrations being held by Hamas and the supporters hailing victory the results will speak for themselves says Gantz and if we look at this prophecy again it does say that the Jews will win in the end and That's what has happened here Uh, Hamas was not able to cripple Israel If anything, Israel has crippled Hamas And that ultimately is the message of the Bible When it comes to anyone trying to mess around with the Jews of Jerusalem Eventually, eventually you will be destroyed or annihilated or defeated And so that that is the message uh, that I think, I hope anyway, that is uh, very clear to people and even in this scripture here that I quoted last week, um see, see, um, Zechariah chapter 7, it talks about the land being desolate, but in other chapters, I think in chapter 9 in particular, uh, it talks about Gaza again, and then it says, um, it says in verse 9, it talks about him coming back, and then, everything would be okay at that time. And he's in verse 13, For I will bend Judah as my bow, I will fill the bow with Ephraim and I will stir up sons. Yeah, and it talks about um, Judah being delivered. So I just wanted to point that out, that in the end, Judah will win. And verse 8 of Zechariah chapter 9, But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them any more I have seen with my eyes. And this is in the context of Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ash- 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 Ashdod, which, of course, those uh, geographical areas exist today. So Zechariah chapter 9 is a good uh, chapter to read in light of what's been going on uh, recently in the Middle East. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out. Let me look at the uh, website, and this website may come in handy today as far as uh, the Bible study, uh, The Economic Collapse. It's a wonderful blog that I recommend anybody read if you want to really understand what's going on. Uh, This blog does not um, favor the Republicans or the Democrats. Uh, They're both corrupt as far as God is concerned, as far as the Bible is concerned Uh, Republicans they they have good conservative views about um abortion and homosexuality but they really have traditionally failed as far as caring for um people that are not in a good financial situation many times the Republicans excuse as well hey they're poor because they're lazy well if you study the bible Sure, that's one reason why someone, that's that's one possible reason why someone is in poverty. But the majority of scriptures indicate that people are poor uh, because of people's or rich folks' oppression of the poor. And and the Bible really talks about that. And when you understand what Yeshua stated about rich, uh, rich people, he stated that it's very difficult. For them to enter the kingdom of God And in that context uh, He stated why It's because they don't want to give up Their many possessions And let me just read this to you Ladies and gentlemen Because I, I don't think people really understand The kind of world that we live in now uh, Is very different Than the way it was um, Early in the 1800s um, Page The end of poverty, which I, you know, the Bible says, first of all, if you want to qualify to be a righteous person, that you must be concerned about the poor. If you're not concerned about the poor, if you're not thinking about the poor, how in the world can you be righteous? And you're going to find that out in the Scriptures today. Uh, You're just playing around. I mean, you might as well just go and do whatever you want, you know. Uh, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 7 states this. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 7. I'm going to show you that God strongly cares about. Them. He cares about everybody, and he and he strongly cares about the poor because he knows the poor don't really have anything, uh, and and he's very concerned about them. And we should be too. Um, Proverbs chapter 29 verse 7 in the New American Standard Bible version it says, "The righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor." You going to tell me? All the Republicans are concerned about the, you know, some of the Democrats aren't concerned about the poor. So, <laughs> on both sides, anyway. And many of these politicians are rich. They, they have, they're not taxed. Uh, they, they have great possessions. And yet, we have a populace right now in this country, the richest country in the world, where we have 50 million people or more on food stamps. It's, it's really no excuse for that. That proves that people are, are being stingy in this country, and we have the most billionaires in this country, and we don't want to give what we should to eliminate that. Psalm 72 reveals that poverty will no no longer exist for people who are trying to obey God. Uh, The People will have what they need in, in the world. And true peace is when people have what they need, not if someone is not firing bombs at each other, but... Peace, true peace is when people don't have any worries. You don't have to worry about people going into your home. You don't have to worry about people stealing anything from you. That's true peace. You don't have to worry about when you're going to get your next meal the next day. And, you know, what's going on, the atrocities that going on in, in some parts of Africa and other poor parts of the world is not going to be, it will not exist in, in uh, Yah's or God's kingdom, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, Proverbs chapter twenty-nine, verse seven: The righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor; the wicked does not understand such concern. So I, I suggest anyone listening to me, especially folks who are rich, start to learn how to be concerned about people that don't have what you need. And and as you're going to learn this Bible study today, you need to learn how to to willfully and cheerfully, not by force. But because you understand that it's the right thing to do, give your possessions to people that need them. And don't assume that they're going to misuse them and all that. That's between uh, the individual and God. It's not your place to judge somebody and and say, well, are they going to use my possessions properly and and all that. I mean, look, in Matthew chapter 5, it's revealed that God gives to to the, the righteous and the unrighteous. And he's the richest being in the universe. So anyway, The End of Poverty by Jeffrey Sachs, page, uh, I'm going to start on page 26 here. It says, the move from universal poverty to varying degrees of prosperity has happened rapidly in the span of human history. 200 years ago, the idea that we could potentially achieve the end of extreme poverty would have been unimaginable. Just about everybody was poor. Now, you know, when I first read this, I I didn't believe this, but it's true. Uh, Just about everybody was poor 200 years ago, with the exception of a very small minority of rulers and large landowners. Life was as difficult in much of Europe as it was in India or China. Our great-great-grandparents were, with very few exceptions, most likely poor and living on a farm. One leading economic historian, Agnes Madison, puts the average income per person in Western Europe in 1820 at around 90% of the average income of Africa today. Life expectancy in Western Europe and Japan as of 1800 was about 40 years. So it says, a few centuries ago, vast divides in wealth and poverty around the world did not exist. China, India, Europe, and Japan all had similar income levels at the time of European discoveries of the sea routes to Asia, Africa, and the Americas. Marco Polo marveled at the sumptuous wonders of China, not at its poverty. Cortes and his uh, conquistadors expressed astonishment at the riches of Chilean, the capital of the Aztecs. The early Portuguese explorers were impressed with the well-ordered towns of West Africa. And in the subheading here, The Novelty of Modern Economic Growth. If we are to understand why a vast gap between the rich and the poor exists today, let me underscore this. If we are to understand why a vast gap between the rich and the poor exists today, we must return to the very recent period of human history when this divide emerged. The past two centuries, since around 1800, constitute a unique era in economic history, a period the great economic historian Simon Kuntz, Kunitz famously termed the period of modern economic growth. Before then, indeed for thousands of years, there had been virtually no sustained economic growth in the world, and only gradually or only gradual increases in human population. The world population had risen gradually from around 230 million people at the start of the first millennium in A.D. 1 to perhaps 270 million by A.D. 1,000 and 900 million people by A.D. 1,800. Real living standards were even slower to change. According to Madison, there was no discernible rise in living standards on a global scale during the first millennium, and perhaps a 50% increase in per capita, meaning per individual income, in the 1800-year period between A.D. 1000 to A.D. 1800. In the period of modern economic growth, however, both population and per capita income came unstuck, soaring at rates never before seen or even imagined. Okay, so these states right here, uh, as shown on figure one, you can't see the figure, but... Uh, i 'll describe what i 'm seeing here when you get around the eighteen hundred all of a sudden the curve just spikes way up around the the year eighteen hundred anyway, as shown on Figure one, the global population rose more than sixfold in just two centuries, reaching an astounding six point one billion people at the start of the third millennium with plenty of momentum for rapid population growth still ahead. It says the world's average per capita income rose even faster, shown in Figure two, increasing by around nine times between eighteen twenty and the year two thousand. In today's rich countries, the economic growth was even more astounding. The U.S. per capita income increased almost 25-fold during this period, and Western Europe's increased 15-fold. Total worldwide food production more than kept up with the booming world population, though large numbers of chronically hungry people remain until today. Vastly improved farm yields were achieved on the basis of technological advances, If we combine the increases in world population and world output per person, we find that the total economic activity in the world, the gross world product, or GWP, rose an astonishing 49 times during the past 180 years. The gulf between today's rich and poor countries is therefore a new phenomenon, a yawning gap that opened during the period of modern economic growth. As of 1820, the biggest gap between the rich and the poor, specifically between the world's leading economy of the day, the United Kingdom, and the world's poorest region, Africa, was a ratio of 4 to 1 in per capita income, even after adjusting the differences in purchasing power. By 1998, the gap between the richest economy, the United States, and the poorest region, Africa, had widened to 20 to 1 percent. Since all parts of the world had a roughly comparable starting point in 1820, all very poor by current standards, today's vast inequalities – let me underscore that – today's vast inequalities reflect the fact that some parts of the world achieved modern economic growth while others did not. Today's vast income inequalities illuminate two centuries of highly uneven patterns of economic growth. Okay, so to highlight this, the three main points, all regions were poor in 1820. All regions experienced economic progress. Today's rich regions experienced by far the greatest economic progress. Okay, and he explains later on, I'm not going to read this whole book but uh, to you, of course, but he explains that the, the, what triggered this was the Industrial Revolution. And he states here, uh, as far as Britain is concerned, He says, Britain's advantages on page 35 in summary were marked by a combination of social, political, and geographical factors. British society is relatively free, politically stable. Scientific thinking was dynamic. Geography enabled Britain to benefit from trade, productive agriculture, and energy resources and vast stocks of coal. Other parts of the world were not as fortunate to have this confluence of favorable factors. Their entry into the modern economic growth would be delayed. In the most disadvantaged environments, modern economic growth has been delayed until today. Okay, and right here, he states here on page 35, this is important, that's why I'm reading this to you, most people don't understand, I mean, you're just born into this world, and you don't understand that this world was not always the way it is right now. People weren't going to offices, people weren't going to grocery stores, people weren't uh, didn't have PCs or, or televisions and, and so forth, people lived on a the farm, they're uh, agrarian. But anyway, page 35 of this book, this great book that I recommend anyone get. Says on the subheading here, the Great Transformation. A combination of new industrial technologies, coal power, and market forces created the Industrial Revolution. Now, this began in Britain. The Industrial Revolution. The industrial Revolution in turn led to the most revolutionary economic events in human history. Since the start of agriculture 10,000 years earlier, suddenly econo- economies rather could grow beyond long accustomed bounds without hitting the biological constraints of food and timber production. Industrial production grew rapidly, and the power of economic growth spilled out from Great Britain to all parts of the world, which only confirms that we're a part of Israel, folks. I've been saying this uh, all the time on this program. I've been preaching that the Bible reveals that Great Britain, the United States, Canada, and the countries in northwestern Europe are all a part of the so-called Ten Lost Tribes of Israel and for proof of that you need to go to this website www.bazenboyritam.org as in boy, .org. That's, um as in boy, org look at your david's website and be enlightened be enlightened anyway industrial production grew rapidly and the power of economic growth spilled out from great britain to all parts of the world societies the world over were fundamentally changed often tumultuously the industrial revolution and the modern economic growth that followed has changed the way people live in every fundamental sense let me underscore this again folks so you'll understand this the industrial revolution and the modern economic growth that followed has changed the way people live in every fundamental sense where and how they live what kind of work or economic activity they perform, and how they form families in Britain first. And then elsewhere, industrialization meant a shift of people from overwhelmingly agrarian, in other words, farm activities, to industrial activities, giving rise to urbanization, social social mobility, or mobility, rather, getting a tongue twister there. New gender and family roles, a demographic transition, and specialization in labor. Modern economic growth is accompanied first and foremost by urbanization, that is, by a rising share of a nation's population living in urban areas. This did not exist prior to the Industrial Revolution. Many people that are born, baby boomers, have no clue about what happened. They have no clue whatsoever unless they study these things. There are two basic reasons why economic growth and urbanization go hand in hand. The first is rising agricultural productivity. As food production per farmer rises, an economy needs fewer and fewer farmers to feed the overall population. As food production per farmer rises, food prices fall, inducing farmers and especially their children to seek employment in non-farm activities. That's the reason why we don't have as many farmers today, because of industrialization. The second is the advantage of high-density urban life for most non-farm economic activities, especially the face-to-face demands of commerce and other parts of the service sector. Sparsely populated rural areas make good economic sense when each household needs a lot of land for farm production, but they make little sense when people are engaged mainly in manufacturing, finance, commerce, and the like. Once the labor force is no longer engaged mainly in food production it is natural that the bulk of the population will relocate to cities drawn by higher wages that in turn reflect the higher productivity of work in densely settled urban areas. And in modern, economic growth has also produced a revolution in social mobility. I can say that word properly now, I guess because uh, I feel a little better about uh, speaking because my voice isn't. So was dry. Anyway, established social rankings, such as the fixed hierarchical divisions between peasants and gentry or within the Indian caste structure, or in the social orders of nobility, priests, merchants, and farmers that characterize many traditional Asian societies, all unravel under the forces of market-based modern economic growth. Fixed social orders depend on a static and largely agrarian economic setting where little changes in living standards or technologies from one generation to the next. They cannot withstand the sudden and dramatic burst of technological change that occurred during modern economic growth in which occupations and social roles shift dramatically from one generation to the next rather than being inherited by sons from fathers and daughters from mothers. And that's the way, biblically, it's supposed to be. I'm not going to read the rest of this book. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to complete the program, but I, I really implore you, get this book and, and read the introductory chapters, uh, the – It talks about a global family portrait and then uh, the spread of economic prosperity. Those two chapters in particular, I've read those two chapters, and it's really an eye-opener. It helps you to understand the kind of society that we live in today and why there is a gap between the rich and the poor, ladies and gentlemen. Most people don't understand that. They don't understand that, but uh, you you must understand that, really, uh, so that you can understand that we must do all we can to help our fellow neighbor. Um, I'm looking at the Economic um, Collapse website here. It says, Our Black Friday is a preview of the civil unrest that is coming when society breaks down. And this is interesting. I'll just read a little bit of this here. It says, If Americans would trample one another just to save a few dollars on a television, what would they do when society breaks down and the survival of their families is at stake? Once in a while, an event comes along that gives us a peek into what life could be like when the thin veneer of civilization that we all take for granted is stripped away. For example, when Hurricane Sandy hit New York and New Jersey, there was rampant looting, and within days, people are digging around in supermarket dumpsters looking for food. Sadly, Black Friday also gives us a look at how crazy American people can be when given the opportunity. This year was no exception. Once again, we saw large crowds of frenzied shoppers push, shove, scratch, claw, bite, and trample one another just to save a few bucks on cheap foreign-made goods. And this this is ridiculous, but this is where our society is just just not thinking straight. It's totally not thinking straight, folks. And, of course, most retailers seem to be encouraging this type of behavior. Most of them actually want people frothing at the mouth and willing to fight one another to buy their goods. But is this the kind of me-first mentality really something that we want to foster as a society? If people are willing to riot to save money on a cell phone, what would they be willing to do to feed their families? Are the Black Friday riots a very small preview of the civil unrest that is coming when society eventually breaks down? Well, the Bible does prophesy that's going to occur, ladies and gentlemen. You know, And then right here, here's another headline. I just got to talking about agrarian societies, uh, societies based on agriculture. They are going to make it nearly impossible to pass on a farm or business to your children. If you have a farm or a small business, would you like to pass it on to your children when you die? Well, unless Congress does something, it is going to become much, much harder to do that starting next year. So much for industrialization, right, and technology. Right now, there is a $5 million estate tax exemption, and anything above that is taxed at 35%. But on January 1st, the exemption will go down to $1 million, and the tax rate will go up to 55%. So anyway, I'm not going to read that, but I think you get the drift there. So, you know, this economy right now is really, really bad, all right, and it's just uh, – right here is another one right here. Will the wealthy race to dump stocks and other financial assets before the fiscal cliff kicks in? The election results made it abundantly clear that taxes are going to be going up, and right now a lot of wealthy people all over America are trying to figure out how to best position themselves for the hit that is coming. They, There are a whole host of tax cuts that are set to expire on December 31st, and many analysts are now speculating that we could see a race to dump stocks and other financial assets before 2013 in order to get better tax treatment on those sales, Of course, it is still possible that Congress may reach a bargain which would avoid these tax increases. But with each passing day, that appears to be increasingly unlikely, especially regarding tax increases on the wealthy. Whatever you may believe about this politically, the truth is that we should all be able to agree that these looming tax increases provide an incentive for wealthy people to sell off financial assets now rather than later. After all, there are very few people out there that would actually prefer to pay higher taxes on purpose, if the race to dump financial assets becomes a landslide, could this push could this push stocks down significantly late in the year? Already there are all sorts of technical signs that indicate that stocks are ready for a correction at the very least. So anyway, uh, again, folks, we're, we're living in a time that the Bible has predicted is really bad for all human beings even rich human beings. And we 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 have to understand that God never intended for people to be in uh this situation I'm gonna read. It says thirty seven facts about how cruel this economy has been to millions of deaths in American families. Have you ever laid in bed awake at night with a knock in your stomach because you didn't know how your family was possibly going to make it through the next month financially? Have you ever felt the desperation of not being able to provide the basic necessities for your family even though you tried as hard as you could? All over America tonight, there are millions of desperate families that are being ripped apart by this economy. There aren't nearly enough jobs, and millions of Americans that actually do have jobs aren't making enough to even provide the basics for their families. When you have tried everything that you can... Think of, and nothing works. And I can relate to that statement. When you have tried everything that you can, think of, and nothing works, it can be absolutely soul-crushing. Today, one of my regular readers explained that he was not going to be online for a while because his power had been turned off. He has been out of work for quite a while, and eventually the money runs out. Have you ever been there? Yes, I have, and I'm sure some of you have too. If you have ever experienced that moment, you know that it stays with you for the rest of your life. If you are a single that is bad enough, but when you have to look into the eyes of your children and explain to them why there won't be any dinner tonight or why they have to move into a homeless shelter. I've never been there yet, but I have gone to food banks and uh, got government assistance uh, when, no one, when no one else cared about helping me. That's what I did. Uh, it can feel like someone has driven a stake into your heart. In this article, you will find a lot of very shocking economic statistics but please remember that behind each statistic there's tragic stories and millions of desperately hurting American families. And, and they're not just black families. It's white families and all types of other families that are struggling in this country, folks. And yet we're in the richest country in the world. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense uh, for people to be in that condition. And it's because of the Industrial Revolution. It's because it has spawned selfish people to be selfish and uh, to be more selfish than they ever have been in the history of the world. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand, and it, it all comes down to: Are you willing to to care about other people? Are you willing to to realize that it's not just about you; it's about everyone, and it's about God, and it's about us caring about other people and realizing that we all come from one blood and we're all family. And that's something that you know I preach. That's part of the the true message of the gospel is to preach that we all come from one blood and that we all should learn how to care about one another and do whatever we can to alleviate any pain or suffering that any of us may be going through that's that's really uh practicing what the gospel is all about and unfortunately many people struggle with that uh they they talk a good game and they say all kinds of other things, but when it comes down to reaching into their pocket and pulling out some money, that's very difficult for a lot of people to do, unfortunately. And and uh, to be in God's kingdom, folks, uh, you're going to have to repent of that attitude. You're going to have to be willing to want to wanna help people and, and, and don't be judgmental toward the people that you're helping. Uh, you, you have to develop that type of attitude. If not, um, your chances of being in the kingdom of God is not very, very good and you have to learn that um, our purpose in life is is to, to help people. And this one website that I recommend that you go to is called uh, globalissues.org, uh, one of the best websites out, perhaps the best website out, that explains to you the poverty issues of the world. Very highly ranked website as well, Global Issues, and this guy just, he just compiled this website because he's concerned about the poor. And uh, this is by Unoop Shah, uh, Poverty Facts and Stats. So when you go to this website, it says almost half the world, over 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 a day. I mean, that that's sad. I mean, that that's really sad. At least 80% of humanity lives on less than $10 a day. More than 80% of the world's population lives in countries where income differentials are widening. Uh, we. we it, this is sad. I mean, we 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 have a world where we have enough resources to feed every man and woman, child on this earth, and yet you have people starving. You have people that. Um, it, it's just sad. It's just sad. Uh, you have a billion children in poverty. Uh, it, it's just sad. It's just really sad, and it's going to change when Yeshua comes back, ladies and gentlemen, when our mighty Lord and Savior comes back. This type of situation will no longer exist. Um, this is one of the major reasons why it's coming back. Let me quote this scripture to you here. Um I have 24 minutes left, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, quote some key scriptures to you about this topic. Um, first of all, let's start with Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, uh, beginning. going uh, to read this, the New American Standard Bible Version. Uh says Malachi 3 verse 1 Behold I am going to send my messenger And he will clear the way before me And the Lord whom you seek Will suddenly come to his temple And the messenger of the covenant In whom you delight Behold he is coming Says the Lord of hosts Verse 2 But who can endure the day of his coming And who can stand when he appears This is talking about his second coming For he is like a refiner's fire And a fuller soap this, I'm, I'm aware that this is a prophecy of duality Cyclical Verse 3 He will sit As a smelter and purifier of silver, he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Verse 4. Then the offering of Judah, or the Jews in Jerusalem, will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years, meaning that the temple sacrifices will be reinstituted. Verse 5. Now, this is the scripture I want you to pay attention to. Please pay attention. Verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages. Um, You had a demonstration the other day, uh, Thursday, with people from Walmart, and I I know Walmart do oppress their employees. They don't pay them nothing. And here they they go uh, uh, rightfully. Uh, complaining that they're not being paid enough. And this is what this scripture is talking about. And against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien or the stranger and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, and and he hasn't changed. In verse 6, I don't change. He still expects us to take care of those who are afflicted. Matter of fact, if you want to know what pure religion is, let's turn to James. It's not preaching, to, uh, talking a good game, it's doing a good game. James 1, verse 27, uh, it says, Pure and undefiled religion or worship, that word is translated into Greek, worship, and the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Well, the poor, people who, and that's a symbol of the poor, orphans and widows, they tend to be poor, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And if you're not caring about other people, you're not practicing pure religion. You're not practicing pure religion at all. You're just uh, pretending. That's all you're doing. Um, and then there's a prophecy in the Bible in, in Proverbs chapter 30 that prophesied basically, basically, basically of the Industrial Revolution and the fact that we're in, a, in the state that we're in today. Uh, it says right here it talks about a generation. Uh, let me read this in the King James Version is a better translation here. It says in in verse fourteen, Proverbs thirty, verse fourteen, there is a generation whose teeth are as swords, and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the vowed of poor from off the earth, and the needy from among men, and that's where we're at right now. This is what industrialization and technology not to say those things are wrong, it's just that or bad. It's just that it's been made to be bad because we have these big gaps between the rich and the poor. That is not biblically, you know, even in the scriptures. Here is it, our desire should not to be rich. In Proverbs chapter eight, verse yeah, Proverbs chapter thirty, verse eight. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Verse nine, that I be full that not I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or at least I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. You know, so our desire really is not to be filthy rich and, and have everything and, and, and then compare ourselves with someone else that doesn't have nothing. That's not that should not be our desire is to is to be in that type of situation. But that's what they tell you. I mean, when you look at uh, shows like um X Factor, American Idol You, you have these people they, They're the only reason why it is there They want to make a lot of money And what does the Bible say about that attitude folks Let's let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 I know this is not a favorite topic for most people But I really don't care I mean, you know, I'm supposed to preach his word And uh, I'm going to preach things that That uh, may be hard for you to accept But these are in the scriptures So you need to um, Understand that and it says right here uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, in the King James Version, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That's how you gain things, by learning how to be patient. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world. It is certain we can carry nothing out. And verse 8, and having food and raiment, of food and clothes and shelter, let us be there with content. Verse 9, but they that will be rich... Fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. I remember uh, a singer that I really like. I uh, still do it to a certain extent. Mariah Carey. I mean, when she first, I tell my wife this. When she first came out, her first video was so innocent. And then gradually, gradually, as you get more into this, the world of rich and famous, that you start to get perverted. And and now she's showing her body like she never has before. That's what happens, same thing with Janet Jackson, same thing with all these other entertainers. Um, the males, too, they get overly sexual, a lot of them, Prince and, and Michael Jackson and so forth. You know, uh, it, it's, it, When you get into this world of richness, it, it, it's a temptation and a snare, and you get really into many foolish and harmful lusts, and it drowns men in destruction and perdition, and I'm sure that you don't want to be in destruction and perdition. And it says right here in verse 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, For the love of money is the root of all evil, or is a root of all evil. That's the proper translation. Which, while which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And the Bible states here in, in verse 11 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, But thou, O man of God, O woman of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. So this is important that don't pursue riches. Pursue the word of God. Build treasure in heaven. That's what you need to be pursuing, not, not making a lot of money. Making a lot of money is not a guarantee that you're going to enter the kingdom of God, ladies and gentlemen. Believe me, I know. I've made a decent amount of money before and all it's done is get me away from God and and God has had to knock me to my senses basically uh, to remind me, hey, do my work first. So <laughs> I know from experience that that what he says here uh is correct here. And he he gives a commandment to rich people. And any rich person that's listening to me, I hope you take this to heart. I, I'm I'm doing this out of love for you. Somebody needs to be preaching a message to rich people, and so I'm going to volunteer to do it. First uh, Timothy chapter six verse seventeen: Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches. That's riches, in First Timothy chapter six verse seventeen. But in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy, verse eighteen: That they do good, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Laying up, and communicate means to distribute, uh, actually uh, to share rather. Verse 19, laying up and store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold until eternal life. So that's how the rich could could, could prevent the following here that's um, prophesied here by Yeshua in reference to the rich man. And I'm sure you're familiar with the scripture. Let's turn there here. Let's go over it again. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 beginning in verse 21. Uh, In the King James, Jesus said unto them, If thou wilt be perfect or complete, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Verse 22, but here we go. (laughs) That was a problem. For the young rich man here. Verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So Yeshua sure desired for him to give up his great possessions. He didn't want to do that, like many other rich people don't want to do today. And verse 23. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now you know a camel going through the eye of a needle, that that ain't happening. So he's saying it's very, 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 very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He says, then for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And then verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? And verse 26, but Jesus beheld them and said unto them, with men this is impossible, but this is the good news for rich folks, but with God all things are possible so the antithesis of that, giving your extra possessions to the poor, that's how you'll be able to save yourself, rich folks. And somebody needs to tell you that, uh, because I don't know if that's being preached today. I think in many circles, uh, a gospel of prosperity is if you obey God, he'll make you rich. And I don't see that in the Bible at all. Uh, That's not God's primary concern is to make you rich uh, when you obey him. Uh, In Luke chapter 12, Let's turn there here. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And one of the company, this is the King James, one of the company, Luke 12 verse 13, and one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. So they're talking about real estate, property, assets. Verse 14, he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? Verse 15, Luke chapter twelve, and he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness or greed, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Let me quote that scripture again: Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists of not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And he gives a parable to, to explain his point here. Uh, Luke twelve verse sixteen. Please, please pay attention to this, uh, especially rich folks. And he's spake a parable unto them saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Verse seventeen, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room to bestow my fruits, bestow my fruits. Verse eighteen. And he said, This will I do, I will pull down my barns, and today you can interpret this as bank accounts, and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. Verse nineteen, and I will say to my soul or my life or me Life, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And he was not even thinking about sharing that with one person, unfortunately. Verse 20, but God said unto him, thou fool. Now, God's calling him a fool. Anyone else a fool that act like this, not me. So don't tell him, don't say that I'm calling you a fool. God is, I'm just speaking the words here. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul or thy life shall be required of thee. Then whose Shall those things be which thou hast provided verse twenty one so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God, and you're rich toward God by sharing those possessions with other people and that that is a very powerful scripture uh folks for anyone to study uh you really need to study that scripture here's another one, a very significant one here a very significant one. Here in Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Luke 19, verse 1, the King James version. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. So we're talking about a rich man, okay? In verse 3 of Luke chapter 19, and he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press because he was a little. So he was a little guy. In verse 4, and he ran before and climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. In verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. In verse 6, and he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. So he was really grateful to see the Lord. In verse 7, and when they saw it, they all murmured or gossiped or whatever, and saying that he was gone to be a guest with well, a man that is a sinner. And so in verse eight, uh, Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I have taken anything, and if, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation I restore him fourfold. And then Jesus was so glad that he said that, and this is what he said, and this is in red letters. Uh, this day is salvation come to this house for so much as he also is a son of Abraham, so he was a Jew. Verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And you can be lost, folks. Rich people can be lost when they don't understand that they must give to uh, people who don't have anything or that need something. And that's a very significant scripture as well that I don't know is being preached today by most folks because we're so brainwashed into this industrialized, technological uh, society, and we we're all brainwashed into thinking that being successful means having a lot of money and, and all that, and that's not what being successful is all about, folks. Far from it. I can tell you that right now. First John 3. First John 3. 1 John chapter 3. States right here in the context of Cain remember what happened with Cain I don't think I have to go there in Genesis chapter 4 um, you can read that chapter if you want but God asked him where's your brother and he said Where, am I my brother's keeper and that word keeper in original Hebrew means protector he wasn't concerned about his brother and so John who was very close to Yeshua here has a midrash or he's Uh, properly interpreting that passage in Genesis chapter 4 to help us understand the significance of Cain's attitude. And he states right here in in 1 John 3, verse 13. Well, actually, let me go a little bit here, but this is very significant. Uh, 1 John 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 12. Then he goes back to Cain, because Cain didn't love his brother. Not as Cain who was of that wicked one, the devil, and slew his brother. And wherewith slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. In verse 13 of one, first John 3, verse 13, Marvel not, my brethren, that the world hate you? Yeah, the world's going to hate what I'm talking about because it gets to the heart and core of what God wants us to do. He wants us to care about people. In verse 14, 1 John 3, verse 14, We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Now, this is also interpreted as loving humanity, because if you don't love humanity, God is not going to allow you to live, folks. He that loveth not his brother or his fellow human being abides in death. In verse 15 of First John 3, whoever hated his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And hating your brother is in the context of not caring about him, not wanting to be his protector as Cain did not want to be his brother's protector and provider of things that he needs. Verse 16, hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And using the example of Yeshua, not only did he lay his his life uh, down for his Jewish brothers, but for the entire world. So this applies also when you see the word brothers applying to to your fellow human being as well. Uh, 1 John 3, verse 16, Hereby perceive we love the love of God because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, or humanity. Verse 17, But whosoever hath this world's goods and sees his brother have need and shut up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? It's impossible to love God, and yet you, you hate your neighbor or you hate your fellow human being or brother. 1 John 3, verse 18, by not caring about him. And and if you have this world's possessions, if you have things to help him, you don't want to help him. You're playing playing around. You're not really a believer. You're just a pretender. 1 John 3, verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so, you know, this is, again, a very powerful scripture, folks. And another one popped in my mind, Matthew chapter 5. And these scriptures are there, and yet I don't hear this being preached too often. In Matthew 5, verse 42, and this is in red letters, uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 42, uh, Jesus' own words here, give to him that asketh of thee, and from him that will borrow of thee, don't turn away. And too many times in my life when I've asked, uh, I've been turned away. And and, uh, I remember other people that have asked, to be helped and they were turned away uh, It's just We live in a very selfish society today in A, sodomite, a sodomitic Or a sodomite type of society Today And I um, In my newsletter which uh, I invite any of you To get by going to my website mercifulservesofgod.com Wait for the drop down box And uh, put your email address uh, And name on there You'll get my newsletter The first newsletter that I produced in November Talks about how We are in a sodomite-type society, and I list the sins of Sodom. Most people think it's just homosexuality. It's much more than that. uh, One of the uh, sins of Sodom is not caring about the poor, not caring about people. Anyway, uh, Matthew 5, verse 43, You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. Verse 44, But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. And do good to them that hate you. This proves that, that the scripture I just called you in First John is applicable toward not only your Christian brother or your fellow believer, but also anyone anyone in, uh, that um, is a human being. Matthew 5, verse 44, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And verse 45, That you may be children of your Father which is in heaven, This is how you become children of your Father in heaven, is by caring about everybody, including even your own enemies. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And verse 46, For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. And if you salute your brethren only, just like I just mentioned, uh, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be ye perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect or complete. So that that's important, ladies and gentlemen, to follow that and realize that you, you need to do those things to be considered uh, complete. And that's the overall goal, folks, for each and every one of us to be complete. And let me uh, read this scripture here in Daniel 4, verse 27. I know most people don't even know that this scripture is there. Uh, but uh, this is a very significant scripture. This is another rich man, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. He was a rich monarch or king. And this is what the prophet Daniel suggested that he do. And this is what I suggest any rich person, anyone that has any extra possessions do as well, for your own good. (laughs) Daniel 4, verse 27, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins. And how do you break off your sins? By righteousness as keeping the commandments, Psalm 119, verse 172, but also doing the following, which is a part of the commandments, like uh, having mercy to the poor. And thy iniquities, so wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, in Daniel 4, verse 27, and break off thy sins by righteousness and thy iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, or compassion, caring about their afflictions and trying to figure out a way to help Eliminate those afflictions. That's what having mercy is all about. That's why I call my fellowship merciful service of God. We all try to care about other people and try to alleviate their afflictions the best that we can. And that's what any believer should do, if it may be the lengthening of thy tranquility. Okay, so it says, Wherefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness and thy iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. That's how you break off your sins, by keeping the commandments and and also showing mercy to the poor. That's how you do that, folks, and that's how you become complete. So that's a good way to end this Bible study. And I'll be available to you, Elohim or Yah willing, next week. May Elohim bless and keep you. And again, um, God willing, I'll be available to you next week. Shalom. Peace. Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch.